Welcome to Brain Ignition Radio. Here I share with you all of the knowledge and resources I've gained as it relates to nutrition, exercise, and brain health. By sharing these interesting case studies, in-depth discussions, and research, I hope that we can learn together and improve our current health and the health of future generations. I'm your host, Chet Binning, and I thank you for tuning in. Before we jump in, I want to mention to you guys, if you want the quick and dirty, so just all of the tools that you can apply that we talk about in this episode and don't care to learn about the mechanisms, skip ahead to about minute 50, and I'm going to list all of those in under five minutes. I also forgot to mention one really important tool in this episode. And I want to share that with you right now. Now it's actually the order in which you eat your meal. This is something I've, I've known about for quite some time and I kind of just brushed off. I thought, nah, it doesn't really matter. I don't think people care about this, but the more I read about this, the more I think this is such a good tool and so easy to apply and could help a ton of people. So believe it or not, the order in which you eat your meal has a profound effect on your appetite. And it has to do with the response of your blood sugar and some of the other hunger signals that we're going to talk about today. How this works is if you eat the protein of your meal first, this is going to be more effective for suppressing your appetite compared to if you are to eat the sugar and carbohydrates of your meal first. That's because the sugar and carbohydrates we know elevates blood sugar, it elevates insulin. And this is one of the things that can increase your appetite. On the other hand, if you start with the protein, we know that that's going to keep that blood sugar response to those carbohydrates that you're going to eat lower. And so the research shows that when they get individuals to change the order in which they eat their meal, it actually has a meaningful effect on their appetite. And so if you want to control your hunger, eat your protein first, eat your fiber, eat your fat, and then finish your meal with the carbohydrates and sugar. And we see this all the time, don't we? Is that dessert comes last, of course, makes total sense. But what else do we see? If you go to a restaurant, they're going to give you bread before they bring your meal. Why is that? Well, that's because it increases your appetite because it elevates your blood sugar and insulin. And this is preparing you for your meal to be able to consume more. Welcome everyone. Thank you for tuning in to part three of our three part fat loss series. Today we're going to talk about temperature and how we can leverage that, particularly cold exposure, to get some fat loss benefits. We're going to talk about weight loss pills, things like hydroxycut and some of these other popular ones, and why those in the long run absolutely do not work. We're going to talk about some hunger hormones and systems, things like leptin and ghrelin and CCK, how these things influence our appetite and food intake. We're going to talk about micronutrients and multivitamins and whether or not those can fit into our fat loss program. And then we're going to give some practical tools on how we can apply all of these as we go throughout. 
If this is the first of this series that you guys are turning tuning into, not that it's completely necessary, especially if you have some background knowledge. However, if this is your first and you skipped one and two, I would encourage you to go back and listen to those other ones beforehand, or at least do so after this, because it, it will definitely help you get more out of this current episode. I want to give you guys a really interesting piece of research before we dig in today. And how we can summarize this is that not all obesity is created equal. So in fact, some people who are obese are in fact healthy. On the other hand, some people who are skinny would be considered metabolically unhealthy. So this would be your classic skinny fat that we hear about. There's actually a medical term for this. It's called TOFI, thin on the outside, fat on the inside same ideas as skinny fat, which we always hear about. But this is not just like a, a, a made up term that you see on the web. This is actually a, a real designation. So if we look at the statistics of the amount of people in the United States who are metabolically dysfunctional, so this means that their body does not cope well with energy, right? They have insulin resistance, they have high levels of inflammation, and they may or may not have diabetes or prediabetes or are on their way to some of these metabolic dysfunctions or metabolic illness. So we know that this is a huge problem, right? Now out of 124 million of these in the United States, 57 million of these people are obese, 67 million are normal weight. So what gives here? How is that even possible? Well, it turns out that not everyone who is obese and overweight is considered metabolically unhealthy. And I'm gonna give you a couple classic examples of this. Sumo wrestlers are a perfect example. Many football players are another really good example as well, particularly NFL linemen. So if you look at these individuals on the outside, they clearly look obese, right? But then we look at their activity level and we look at their blood work. So what's actually going on in the inside? And we find that due in large part to their extreme activity level, they are metabolically healthy. And it has to do with the type of fat that they're accumulating, in fact. So these individuals who are obese but metabolically healthy have higher amounts of subcutaneous fat. So this is the type of fat that's found just beneath our skin. This differs from something called visceral fat. Visceral fat would be the type of fat that accumulates around the organs. Not a good thing, that's a terrible thing. We certainly do not want that. But that's really the difference here is that individuals who are overweight but metabolically healthy have low levels of visceral fat, high levels of sub-Q fat. On the other hand, these individuals who are skinny fat or TOFI they have high levels of visceral fat, and you cannot see this on the outside. If you look at someone who appears fat, what you're seeing is typically subcutaneous fat. So you can't visualize that visceral fat. That's how this is possible. And as you can see, it seems like the major determining factor here is the activity level. So isn't that interesting? The activity level has such a profound effect on this. And sometimes it is regardless of appearance. So that's something important to keep in mind, I think. Another really interesting thing that we can take away from this is that this shows us that 
a calorie is not a calorie. And this is why I cringe, but also laugh when I, I and many others continue to see this everywhere is that it doesn't matter what you're eating. A calorie is a calorie. If it fits your macros, all these things that just so strongly claim that basically whether it's processed food, fast food or whole foods, it doesn't matter. All that matters is the amount of protein, carbohydrates, and fats that you're getting. And this shows us, well, that's just not the case because if that were true, these people who have more stored calories, well, they shouldn't be healthy. That sumo wrestler, that lineman, they have more stored calories. They should be unhealthy. Vice versa, those individuals who have less stored calories, so they're skinny on the outside, they shouldn't be unhealthy. They should be healthy. So what this tells us is that calories are not just a calorie. They're also signaling molecules throughout the body. So when you consume a food, depending on what it is, say a banana versus a chocolate bar, yes, it has calories, but then it's going to lead to a number of different signaling events through the body and that's going to have a completely different effect on the body so i thought that was really interesting just something to keep in mind as we go through this let's kick things off today with temperature so we've talked a little bit about um sweating in a in a previous episode and how the amount you sweat is really not affecting how much fat you lose that's a a a really big myth but today we're going to focus on cold instead because we know that cold can actually increase the weight at which you burn fat. So there's some really interesting studies showing that even just adjusting the thermostat and the temperature of your house consistently throughout the course of a year can actually increase the amount of calories that you burn throughout the year. So in, in most studies, what they show is that having your thermostat down to about 17 or 15 is likely sufficient to get some of these benefits and doing this for several hours a day throughout the course of the year. Now, clearly at first, this is going to feel a little bit uncomfortable, especially if we're doing this in the winter time, maybe in the winter time, you don't want to have it set that cool, but we know that the body adapts. The body has this incredible ability to adapt to everything. Temperature is one of those things. And so even if you are uncomfortable with it at first, keep in mind, remember that you're getting some benefit from it, but also know that it's going to become more comfortable over time. Now, the other interesting thing here is that specifically shivering. So of course, we're going to shiver when we're most cold, right? But that's an adaptive response too. So if you shiver when exposed to, let's say, we'll just use a, a hypothetical number here. Let's say you expose yourself to zero degrees Celsius for those of you who are using Celsius. If you expose yourself to that same temperature on a regular basis, you will eventually adapt to that and you will no longer shiver. That's not a surprise, right? Everyone who lives in a northern climate, especially, knows this. We know that January, February, especially if you're living in Canada, February this year was bloody cold. It's, you know, minus 20, sometimes minus 30. 
but we can deal with it. Yeah, it sucks and it's cold, but we can deal with it. But if you were to expose yourself to that, say March, April, May, June, when we're used to that 20 and 30 degrees Celsius hot, sunny weather, it would just crush you. It would feel so awful. So the point here is that we adapt, the body adapts to temperature. Now, the reason I highlight this is because some people will claim that you have to shiver. It has to be cold enough to make you shiver to get that benefit because shivering burns more calories, right? It's, it's literally burning energy so that your body can create heat and elevate your core body temperature. <clears throat> but it's not necessary. The point here is that if you adapt and no longer shiver, even if it is the same temperature, you can still get some of these benefits. So it's this is what we would call non-shivering thermogenesis, which is where even without shivering, your body's going to be burning calories to generate heat to restore your core body temperature. So I'm going to give you a couple really easy, I would say, hacks in addition to the thermostat trick that you can apply here. But there's another really cool mechanism at play here. And it has to do with, believe it or not, another type of fat. So not all fat is created equal either, it turns out. So there's something called brown adipose tissue, or just for short, BAT or BAT. So what's so cool about BAT is that it's the type of fat that's really important for this process we're talking about. So for the production of heat. And what the science shows is that the more we expose ourselves to these cold temperatures, the more brown adipose tissue that we, or bat, that we actually create basically, like quite literally grow. So that's pretty cool, right? It, it, it's showing us that as we expose ourselves to cold temperatures, our body goes through this adaptation of its fat and becomes more efficient to generate heat. And when it does this, that's burning calories, that's gonna help you burn fat. And in fact, they've looked at studies and they find that individuals who have more or less brown adipose tissue, their blood looks different too. So this is a, a cool thing to highlight here is that individuals with more brown adipose tissue or BAT, they actually have less branch chain amino acids in the blood. So this will be cool for some of you savvy folk out there who are familiar with BCAAs. This is a type of amino acid. We get it from diet or we can get it from supplement. Now there's a lot of claims out there that high levels of branch chain amino acids in the blood are a bad thing. And so this is one of the, one of the, um, I guess points that, that people will, point out or fact that people will point out when they try to claim that, you know, protein is detrimental because they'll say, look, these people have high levels of BCAs in their blood. And this is also associated with diabetes. But in fact, what we find here is that people with high levels of brown adipose tissue have less branch chain amino acids in their blood because they take that out of the blood put that into their mitochondria, they burn that to create energy for the body to elevate body temperature. So if I, I lost you there, don't worry. The point about this is that 
first of all, context is everything. But most importantly is that what this helps the body do is take energy out of our blood, convert that into heat. So we're quite literally burning calories to generate heat. So this is a, a really useful tool, right? And the last thing I want to just quickly highlight to you guys is that the research also shows that individuals who are obese actually have a lower core body temperature. So this tells us that their body's not burning as many calories to maintain that core body temperature. That's interesting too, right? Suggesting that there's some type of adaptation that the body has undergone, which is now restricting their ability to burn calories and burn fat. Now, this isn't saying that, you know, lack of cold exposure was the cause here. This is just saying that this is one of the adaptations and perhaps one of the things that keeps them at that body composition or makes it difficult for them to lose weight. So there's all types of cool adaptations that the body is going to undergo, whether for better or for worse. And temperature is definitely one of those that encourages this. Now, how can we generate more brown adipose tissue? Well, I kind of already gave you an example, quite simply with the thermostat. But even just exposing yourself to a cold shower, a cold bath, I really like a daily cold shower, not necessarily just for this benefit, but because of what it does to your central nervous system. So believe it or not, as you get used to it, it does have this dramatic calming effect and improves your focus. We know that cold has a ton of benefits in addition to this, this fat loss um, aspect. Now we don't know how long it takes or what the perfect temperature is, and that would just get way too detailed and complicated unnecessarily, I think. So this is a, a nice place to start is daily cold in the shower and you just kind of build on that. The nice thing about this is that the more often you do that, you'll also become, you'll find more resilient to the cold in your house or the cold outside. So there is this crossover effect here. Babies actually have a lot of brown adipose tissue. If you think about it, this is a protective mechanism, right? because if they ever are cold, then they have all of this bat in place to convert their body stores into heat to keep their core temperature elevated and help them survive. Let's move on to some weight loss pills now. I know this is a, a hot topic. These are huge. They've been huge for several years now. I actually looked up one of the most popular examples. I had no idea what was in it. It's been so long since I looked at it, but hydroxycut, I think we've all heard about this one. The key ingredients here are really high dose caffeine. So there's actually 270 milligrams. That's a pretty big dose. Um, I believe a, say uh, your average medium coffee, I think has about 150 milligrams, give or take, depending on where you get it. So that's a big dose. It also has something called yohimbine. Now, yo, what yohimbine does is it elevates adrenaline, otherwise known as epinephrine. So we'll get into what, what these do and why this is important. But other things you could put into this category of stimulant-based fat loss 
supplements or formulas. Ephedrine would be another classic example, or even just high dose caffeine in general. Now, so what these do and how they act is that they create high levels of adrenaline, which is the same thing as epinephrine, really confusing, I know, but these are the same thing, just a different naming system. They'll elevate other stress chemicals and hormones like cortisol. We've all heard of cortisol probably. This is what your adrenal glands are going to produce when you are stressed, whether that be physically or mentally. And what these do is they'll actually bind to receptors on our fat tissue. And that encourages fat tissue to release its stores so that the body can then burn this as energy. Now, this is a, this is a normal thing, this, this process right here, in fact. It's a good thing. Um, we all have this. A similar thing is going to happen during exercise, actually. So when you exercise, you're also creating adrenaline and epinephrine and cortisol. And that's one of the reasons why exercise is going to burn fat, because it leads to this release, this, this release of energy stores so that the body can then burn that. The problem with these is that they excessively elevate these signals. They just skyrocket this epinephrine and cortisol. To give you an example, the ephedrine, this is something that elevates adrenaline for five to six times as long as what naturally our body would do. So it's just something that our body would not be exposed to under natural conditions. Now, as you might have already guessed, the problem with this is that shocking the body adapts. It's just so bloody smart. It adapts to everything. The adaption to this is pretty similar to insulin. In fact, we, we talked about this in some pretty great detail in episode two. So check that out if you haven't already. But we know that the body doesn't like excessively high levels of things. Insulin's an example, but these stress hormones are another example. It doesn't like being under constant conditions of stress. It will adapt. And what happens in this scenario is that receptors for this cortisol, for this epinephrine and adrenaline, they'll actually become desensitized because they've been overstimulated. Same thing as insulin. They kind of just say, sorry, you, you've just annoyed me too much and I'm just going to shut down for now. I, I don't care. I don't want to answer to that incoming signal. And so this is what happens. We kind of wear out our system so that it doesn't answer to these important signals. Now let's back up, consider why that's so important. Well, remember we said that the answering to these signals is one of the things that helps the body burn fat. And so if our body becomes desensitized to it, that means it's going to be harder for us to burn this energy and ultimately burn fat. And similarly, there's some fascinating research on this. So it actually shows that individuals with obesity and or type two diabetes have resistance to the lipolysis effects of epinephrine. So what that means is their body has become resistant to the incoming signals of this adrenaline and epinephrine. And so it takes longer for them to release energy, release fat to be burnt as energy. So again, this adaptive mechanism. 
And so the key takeaway here, guys, is that just the biggest one, if you can take away one thing from this episode, it might be this right here, excess stimulants and excess stress, which we can get if we take a ton of caffeine, a ton of these weight loss pills, not a good thing. This should only be used if your goal is short term fat loss. If you're prepping for a photo shoot or a show or a competition or whatever, this would be okay to use because it certainly is effective. I mean, you'll get cut up pretty quick when you take these. The problem though is the rebound effect. It's the bounce back. It's the fact that when you go off of these, your appetite's going to go way up. And in some instances, if you use them long enough, it's going to make it harder for you to burn fat in the future. It's not just the pills though. What are some other things that elevate this stress like this? Well, it's too much exercise or overtraining. It's also too much dieting or being in a caloric deficit for far too long. The perfect storm is the combination of both of these together, which is so incredibly common. It's really unfortunate, but overtraining, so just working out several hours a day, never taking rest days, undersleeping, using a ton of caffeine to keep yourself going because you wake up feeling groggy because you're so poorly rested and you just do it all over again. Combined with this excessive dieting. And this is how it happens. You're, ju you're just wearing your system out. Now this is what you might hear called quote unquote adrenal fatigue. Um, so the symptoms of this are certainly real, the fatigue, the brain fog, the lack of motivation, some hormonal issues, but it's a, it's, it's not the proper name because your adrenals are not actually getting fatigued. They're not getting tired. As we just discussed, what's happening is your body's basically just not responding to the signals that your adrenals and your brain have created. So it's not that your adrenals are getting tired and not producing these signals. They're still making them. Your body's just not answering them. Now, another problem with this and why we see this as such a, a long-term issue is that it's going to lead to other things. So it's not just this one single response. Cause we know this, the body is, it's, it's so interconnected that it's, it's always a domino effect. And so when we have elevated levels of stress like this from overtraining, undersleeping, excess stimulation, lack of energy and food intake, we get other side effects. So your blood sugar becomes eleva elevated along with insulin. This can lead to insulin resistance. You're going to get inflammation because this always comes alongside blood sugar issues and excess stress. And we're going to get some of the symptoms we've already mentioned, low confidence, low motivation, lack of energy. And that's because to make things like adrenaline that your body's just now cranking out endlessly, you actually need dopamine. So you make this from dopamine, which means you're depleting your dopamine. And what's this? Well, as we've discussed as well, this is an important neurotransmitter in the brain that is good for our mood and motivation and confidence. And so it's really this, this stream of events, this 
long list of things that happen as a side effect to this, which can lead to that end result. So I hope you guys can take a, a, a tool out of that, but just know that, I mean, there's a couple things here, right? Rest is so important. You need rest. Every athlete needs it regardless of who you are. Control your caffeine intake. More is not always better. It's also not free. I personally like to have at least one day per week where I have zero caffeine. I like to do this on Sundays. And I, I usually only drink about a, a cup of coffee a day even. But still, I think this is a good trick for everyone. The other thing with caffeine we should keep in mind is that everyone has a different sensitivity, right? So your friend or spouse or whatever might be able to handle a bunch of caffeine and be okay. You might have just a little bit and maybe start to dig yourself a hole like this. So just be mindful of that. Everyone's created differently and is going to handle this energy in a different way. Let's talk about some hunger hormones now, shall we? Obviously really important. We know that many quote unquote diets or attempts fail because of our hunger. We just can't control that. And then we end up overeating or maybe we just don't feel satisfied. So there's a lot of different signals at play here in the body and brain that we can actually control. So these aren't just automatic. We can absolutely control these. Now, the first one we'll talk about is called ghrelin. So ghrelin is a appetite stimulant. So as ghrelin increases, our appetite increases. Now, the most interesting thing about ghrelin to me is that as blood sugar starts to lower, ghrelin will increase. And so if you've ever felt that kind of sinking feeling deep in your gut, that low blood sugar feeling, maybe you start to get shaky or jittery or anxious or get the sweats, that's some of that low blood sugar coming on. And this is going to also lead to an increase in ghrelin, which is going to make us hungry. So what can we do about this? Well, if you have a difficult time with appetite, we need to look at things that really support blood sugar control. And this is exactly what we talked about in the previous episode. So you guys already know these. It's things like adequate protein. It's lots of activity and movement, especially around your meals. It's making sure you get enough micronutrients, particularly things like magnesium and zinc. So maybe a good multivitamin. That's another thing we're going to talk about later on. There's other trace minerals to look out for that are really important for stabilizing blood sugar. Things like chromium or vanadium. And what we talked about earlier on with the excess stress, excess stimulation, controlling that is also going to be one of the most important things to control blood sugar. If we're stressed all the time, then our blood sugar is going to be jumping all over the place. Because as you become stressed, so just think of the last time you worked out or got mad, whatever it is, your blood sugar went way up. This is the response of our body. This is a, a, a way for us to deal with that stressor, right? We become stressed. The body says, all right, we better start releasing all of this stored energy so that we have enough energy to cope with this stressful stimulus, whatever it may be. Your body doesn't know 
whether that stress is exercise, if you got cut off in traffic, if you're in an argument, or if it's a saber tooth tiger trying to bite your head off, it doesn't know the difference. So the point here is that controlling stress is another really important thing to improve blood sugar control. What about leptin? So leptin is sort of the opposite of ghrelin if we really simplify it. While ghrelin is released from our gut and acts in the hypothalamus of our brain, so that region of our brain that's really important for all of these hormonal responses and, and basic survival mechanisms, things like fighting and fear and feeding and, you know, you guessed it, the other F word as well. So leptin is, like I said, kind of the opposite, but it works a little bit different, of course. So ghrelin stimulates the appetite, leptin suppresses the appetite, but leptin's not released by the gut. It's actually released from our fat tissue. So generally speaking, the more fat we have, the more leptin we will release, which travels to the brain, the same spot, the hypothalamus, and tells us to stop eating. Now, you might be hearing that and wondering like, okay, well, that's funny. Then, then why is anyone overweight if we have this leptin? Shouldn't it just prevent us? That's a really good question. And the answer is that, again, the body adapts, unfortunately. Not unfortunately, it's, it's just what happens. So with individuals who are overweight, have obesity, maybe type 2 diabetes, we know that there's actually leptin resistance. So similar to what we see with things like insulin or adrenaline, which we talked about earlier in this episode, we can also have resistance to leptin. And this happens from releasing too much, which is going to happen from having too much fat. So it's kind of this double-edged sword, if you will, where the more fat we gain, the more leptin we release, which is good initially, but as that cycle continues, it can lead to this resistance. And so the result is just raging appetite and, and making it difficult to control our caloric intake. And there's some pretty interesting studies to outline this, showing that this resistance develops. Now, we're not really sure how this happens. Some scientists think that there's actually a failure of leptin to get into the brain. So a failure of leptin to get into the brain, into the hypothalamus to have this appetite suppressing effect. We're not really sure yet what the cause is. But with something that suppresses appetite, not surprisingly, there's been attempts to create a drug out of this. This always happens when research finds things that suppresses appetite, but it failed miserably. It just didn't work. And perhaps we could have predicted this. It's because none of these things work in a chamber. They all work together, influencing one another. And so as our stress changes and insulin changes, so does leptin and, and many other hormones that are going to work together to influence our appetite. But what can we do to maybe modulate this? So perhaps hunger again is an issue. Now, Still the same rules that we have covered as it relates to blood sugar are all going to be beneficial here because leptin and insulin often 
work together as well or change together, I should say. So in fact, one of the reasons why we see this quote unquote yo-yo dieting. So this, this effect where people lose a ton of weight, keep it off for a little bit of time, but then they put it back on oftentimes even put more back on. Well, it has to do actually with the rebound effect of leptin and insulin. And so this is something for us to target that potential rebound effect, but also just optimizing these overall. I should mention actually, to give some context, the biggest loser that the TV show, if you remember this, this is a classic example of this, of this rebound effect. And the problem with losing a ton of weight very rapidly and doing it very aggressively, which they do on the show. They've found that even six years later, after that initial weight loss, these individuals still have a suppression of their metabolic rate. So if you haven't looked into this, unfortunately, the show is, I mean, a a big failure really is what it is because these individuals end up regaining the weight they lose. And oftentimes in these follow-up studies, when they track them for several years after, they end up gaining even more than they lost. And it has to do with this rebound effect of these hormones, which we can avoid if we use more sustainable approaches, which is why we're doing this episode in the first place. So not using these weight loss pills, not using aggressive diet restriction with aggressive exercise, especially if you've never done that before, which is exactly what they do on this show. They start cracking the whip and getting these people to work out several hours a day. They dramatically drop their calories where these individuals are probably not used to doing any exercise at all. So it's, it's, it's really not a sustainable approach. So what can we do to target this? Well, if you do suspect some real appetite issues and you've tried all these other things, or if this is just something you want to experiment with wild mango actually has some interesting research showing that it improves leptin sensitivity. So if you're someone who's gone through these fluctuations, this would be a a good natural supplement to incorporate. You might also see this called Irvingia gabonensis. This is its uh, proper name, but the common name would be wild mango. So this is obtained from a, a African tree and it has this leptin sensitizing effect. And then still blood sugar is going to be really important here. That's always important. That's why we put so much emphasis on it. This is going to support leptin as well. CCK, this is another important hormone that we can impact, which stands for cholecystokinin. So this is one that's released from our gut and then also travels to the brain and has a appetite suppressing effect. So it it blunts our appetite. This is released in response to food intake. So it's kind of cool, isn't it? When we look at these different ones, even if one has the same effect, it's produced at a different time or from a different signal. Ghrelin was in anticipation of a meal or food. CCK has a similar effect, but it's in response to food. So how we can tap into this one is the types of foods we're eating and The research shows that 
particularly different macronutrients have a different effect on CCK. And in fact, the strongest response of CCK, so we're going to get the most response, robust response from CCK, which is going to inhibit our appetite from amino acids and protein. So this is one of the neurological reasons why getting adequate protein is such a strong appetite suppressant, why it's so good at, at preventing hunger. Omega-3. It's been too long since we've talked about omega-3, but this also will stimulate CCK and so does CLA. So I find this fascinating as well, because if we look at different foods in nature, their amount of omega-3 and CLA dramatically differs, even depending on the source. So grass-fed beef would be a really good example here. We know that grass-fed beef is a lot higher in omega-3 than conventional grain-fed beef. More specifically, it's the ratio. So the amount of omega-6 is lower in the grass-fed versus the grain, which then improves that ratio of 6 to 3. So that's going to be, technically speaking, better for appetite. But this is just to, to compare and contrast the same food and how even that can have a different effect. And then CLA or conjugated linoleic acid. This is a, another really popular supplement. We see it in a lot of fat loss products, but you can get a ton of this from diet too. Beef is one of the highest sources of this, but if we use this example again, CLA is 300 to 500% higher in grass fed versus grain fed beef. And so what this tells us is that if we want to consume a meal that's going to have the strongest appetite suppressing effect, it's going to make us most satiated and satisfied. Well, the research suggests that it's something that's going to be high in protein in these amino acids. It's going to give us an abundance of omega-3 and it's going to give us some CLA. There is one particular amino acid that's most effective for elevating CCK, and that's actually glutamine. So glutamine is considered a quote unquote, conditionally essential amino acid. What this means is that the body can make some, but in times of stress and greater need, the body cannot make enough. Now, on the other hand, if you hear essential amino acid, that means the body cannot make it. We have to obtain it. If on the other hand, you hear another amino acid, which isn't essential, which isn't conditionally essential, that suggests that the body can make it and can make enough. Uh, although there, there is certainly some debate to that. But the key here is that if we get adequate amounts of glutamine from diet, this too is going to have a really beneficial effect on our appetite. So we can get glutamine from lots of meats. Um, it's, it's high in dairy as well. We can supplement this as well. And this is a really effective tool for individuals who are really want, wanting to control hunger, but also for individuals who want to restrict carbohydrates in order to lose fat. 
which for some people we know is a really good approach, especially if we have someone who has some excess fat and has some metabolic issues. So maybe they're not as insulin sensitive as we'd like them to be. And this is a really good tool to help with that. So there is a, a, a pretty effective protocol for this that was made popular by Charles Poliquin. Um, if you don't know who Charles was, he's unfortunately recently passed away in the last couple of years, but he was a, a Canadian health and fitness coach who is just so beyond his years in terms of knowledge on not only fitness, but also the nutrition side of things. And this was one of his approaches with individuals who had to lose extra fat while reducing carbohydrates. He would give them high dose glutamine as a way to suppress their appetite, but also as a way to mitigate the potential side effects of restricting carbohydrates. And so something like about five to 20 grams of glutamine, either post-workout or just in a shake with a fat source, such as coconut oil or uh, whole fat cream, really good trick to suppress appetite, especially if someone is dieting and cutting calories and, or to support recovery from training in the absence of carbohydrates. So if you guys want a little bit more information on that one, I actually just posted about that uh, the other day on, on Instagram. So you can check that out, but pretty incredible that he was using this. I mean, I don't know, um, more than a decade ago. And since then there's been a ton of research to catch up and actually show the precise mechanisms at play here. This being one of them, CCK that we get from glutamine. Now, just as we can support CCK, there's other things we can do to, to impair it. Things like processed foods, actually not going to be good for this at all. And in fact, we can damage the intestinal lining, which is important for these responses by consuming more processed foods. So one example would be emulsifiers actually. So this is used to extend the shelf life of certain foods. So you might see it in, in chips or meats or whatever. I think some of the more common ones would be, um, polyscorbate 80 or I'm drawing a blank on the other one, but these emulsifiers that are used for shelf life ultimately. And what these can do is they'll strip away the mucosal lining of our gut. And this can believe it or not blunt hunger signals. So again, specific mechanisms at play that make processed food, not a good tactic. And we do see several pieces of research to kind of expand on this. If our goal is to control appetite and have healthy body composition, I don't think processed foods are a good option at all. Of course we can use them in very small amounts if needed for convenience, but long-term it's not going to be a good option. And, and we see studies that show that even after just 14 days, those who are following a processed diet versus unprocessed are actually going to 
consume more food if they have access to food and are just able to consume as, as much as they want. <clears throat> and in addition to that, as a final note on processed foods, I mean, we know that manufacturers intentionally design these foods in a way to increase hunger, reward, and make you eat more. So Coca-Cola is a classic example of this, right? They add both caffeine and salt. This has a diuretic effect, which makes you thirsty, which encourages you to drink more of that pop. But this would taste like crap if it was just caffeine and salt. Who wants to drink that? So what they do is they add copious amounts of sugar to this to stimulate reward and addiction pathways in your brain causing you to just come back for more and more and more. So this is kind of like a, a just a, a classic example of this, of, of these food manufacturers designing foods that just would not exist in nature. We wouldn't find these ratios. And they do this quite literally in a way that takes advantage of our, our hunger systems. Um, so they certainly don't care about our health. Now, the last thing we'll talk about today are multivitamins because there is several really important micronutrients that are important for blood sugar, hunger, controlling our appetite. And the easiest way to make sure we get enough of these is really just with a good high quality multivitamin. So I'd suggest ATP labs, total defense, this only uses active form micronutrients, which means that we're getting the type of each micronutrient that the body's actually going to absorb. This is a big problem with multivitamins, but supplements in general is that they're not in the proper form. And so you really don't even absorb it. One a days are another problem as well. Cause if you think about it, you can only fit so much in one single tiny little capsule and that's not enough to deliver your needs. Physically, you, you can't stuff enough of each single micronutrient into one capsule to actually give you the benefit that you're looking for. So those are two things to look out for. Now, the, the important micronutrients that we're talking about here are chromium, vanadium, and several B vitamins. So chromium is a trace mineral that's really important for tolerance to glucose. There's research to show that if we are deficient in chromium and then restore it, it improves insulin sensitivity and sometimes promotes fat loss. Vanadium is another trace mineral. We don't hear about this one too often, but it's another one that's really important for blood sugar and insulin sensitivity. Magnesium, extremely critical. This is one that you want to take on its own. If you want more information about this one, I've shared a ton about this over the past several months or, or years. So feel free to just check that out on the socials or maybe my website, but this is required to actually burn fat. It's also required to make energy and it's required for good sleep and controlling stress. So just so many things throughout the body that magnesium requires several of the B vitamins as well. So thiamine, for instance, important for blood sugar and insulin. And then we could easily make a case for B6, B9, B12, because these are important for production of catecholamines, which are things like dopamine. Now, if you think back to 
our discussion of controlling stress and the problems with weight loss pills and some of these stimulants. Recall that the more of those we use, the more adrenaline we create. And we create that from dopamine, which means we can deplete that system. But B6, B9, B12, these are example vitamins that are actually required to make dopamine. So if we trace that pathway all the way back, well, we could deplete these as well pretty easily, especially if we're not consuming enough from diet, which can be very difficult, especially nowadays. And so we're going to get healthy levels of these from a multivitamin as well. And I say multivitamin because people often hear about these. So things like chromium or vanadium or even thiamine, and they think that they need to rush out and then all of a sudden buy each and every single one on its own. Sometimes there's an exception and some people would benefit from buying that individual one. However, make things on easy on yourself, get a good multivitamin and you're going to be getting adequate amounts of these. Magnesium would be an exception though, for sure where you want to take that one on its own. And I just often wonder with a lot of these studies that look at things like appetite, they look at things like yo-yo dieting, they look at things like blood sugar and all of this. And I, I just kind of, I wonder like, would things be different if they screened individuals beforehand to determine if they were getting enough of these micronutrients? I don't know the answer. I'd be interested to see it because I, I do suspect with the extreme intakes of processed food that we see that the huge majority of people are likely deficient in these micronutrients and that alone could be negatively impacting hunger, blood sugar, and just their ability to lose fat and maintain that. I don't know, but, and maybe we won't know, but it, it would be really interesting to see. The easiest solution here, guys, as we've said a hundred times over, prioritize whole foods. If we do that, we're going to be getting lots of these micronutrients. We're going to naturally be getting more healthy fats and protein, which is going to suppress our appetite and support our overall health. If we try and kind of cheat and do this with the, if it fits your macros way with lots of processed foods, can we do it? Yeah. You know, some people probably, but it's just going to be so much harder and it's probably not going to be sustainable. So let's give a quick rundown here. Maybe you skipped ahead to this point and are just wanting the quick and dirty solutions and tools. That's totally cool. So let's just go through these now and summarize them. So overall, we know that we want to control insulin and blood sugar, and that's going to also benefit several of these other hormones we've talked about. And the reason we do this is because it's going to reduce our appetite and it's going to support fat loss as well and just overall health in general. So for starters, we want to consume adequate protein in particular because that's going to improve insulin sensitivity and blood sugar. It's also the strongest appetite suppressant because it increases CCK also increases something called neuropeptide Y, which we did not talk about, but this is also going to suppress our appetite. It's also going to support lean muscle 
which we know is going to elevate our resting metabolic rate so that we can burn through more energy and lose fat easier. And then higher healthy fat intake is going to be beneficial for a lot of people as well, especially if you're someone who is less active and or someone who does struggle with appetite. We want to also use as many glucose disposal agents as possible because this is going to improve insulin sensitivity and blood sugar as well. And we went through a long list of these in our previous episode. So check that out, but there's some other ones from this episode as well that we can take advantage of. So the chromium, the vanadium, the magnesium, those are all examples, which you can get from that multivitamin, which can act as glucose disposal agents, or at least to support this response. We want to be metabolically flexible as well. We haven't got into this a ton, but that's because the way that we can do this is, is much the same. So you want to resist eating high carbohydrate, high sugar all the time. Even if you do that, say you're an athlete, you still want to mix in times when you drop your carbohydrates and sugar way down. And then in exchange for that increased fat. So this is a pretty popular and common and effective approach is this, um, this, this flip flopping of the carbs and fats, quite literally, you just exchange those calories that you would get from carbohydrates for the fats. And again, if you have questions about this, uh, feel free to reach out to me, but this is an effective strategy as well, because it forces the body to use different fuel sources. Omega-3, getting enough of this from your diet and supplementation if needed, suppresses appetite, mainly because of that CCK response. But it's also going to support inflammation. We also know that omega-3 supports healthy cell membranes, which is going to improve the sensitivity of your body to incoming signals. And this is going to support fat loss as well. Things like wild mango that can be used to support insulin sense or pardon me, leptin sensitivity. Another thing that's going to be good for hunger. And last, but certainly not least one we did not talk about is berberine. So berberine is from tree bark in fact. So obviously a natural substance, but what it does is it lowers blood sugar and is also beneficial for the gut. So this is a more, sustainable approach, if you will, to something like excess caffeine and stimulation, which can be incorporated to kickstart healthy fat loss.